0: One thing you're going to find out about Lana and I both is that we love to worship. We love to praise our King. And it's fun whether you have a band, whether you have a piano and a choir, or even just a video. We can praise the Lord. And he comes in and he inhabits the place. Because, you know, that's what we want when we come to Bible study. Y'all don't need me. Y'all don't need Lana. You need an anointed word of God. And so that's how, while we worship and we praise him, just to allow him to come and fill this room up and open our hearts to receive. Um, you know, last week we talked about every one of us being a champion, that there is a champion within each of us, that we have been called, we've been chosen, and we've been anointed just like David. And then through Lana we saw and we learned that But we have to stay following our king, right? where he said, come and follow me, we've got to stay behind him and follow him to be a champion. And then we also talked about, or talked about, how we needed to count the cost. Because it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something to be a champion for Christ. There's going to be sacrifices that are going to have to be laid out on the table. But I want to ask you the question tonight. What do you do when you know there's a champion within you know that God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. And there's no more excuses. But then a roadblock comes. The giant comes in front of you. And you know you're a champion, but it's hard. What is going to be the driving force in your heart that pushes you through? I want you to think about that question as we watch this short little video about Tim Tebow.
1: the thing that makes life so interesting the theory of evolution claims only the strong shall survive maybe so maybe so but the theory of competition says just because they're the strong doesn't mean they can't get kicked that's right see what every long shot come from behind underdog will tell you is this the other guy may in fact be the favorite The odds may be stacked against you. Fair enough. But what the odds don't know is this isn't a math test. This is a completely different kind of test. One where passion has a funny way of trumping logic. So before you step up to the starting line, before the whistle blows and the clock starts ticking, just remember out here... Something uh, that people can look back and say is that this kid gave his heart to us, he gave his heart to the University of Florida, he gave his heart to the fans, uh, and every time he stepped on this field, he gave everything he possibly had. Not that he won every game, not that he was the best player, uh, not that he won the most games or most championships, but that he cared and he loved us and he left everything on this field.
0: Hey, Kimberly, can you turn that volume down? There's that little buzz. Y'all hear it? All right, so let me ask y'all the question again. What do you think is at the heart of a champion when you're the underdog? When the the math test results aren't going to come through for you? Did you hear what he said? Passion trumps logic. I love the quote, and it says, Only the strong will survive, but the underdog will tell you this, that results don't always add up, because passion trumps logic. And then at the end, when the announcer was interviewing Tim Tebow, he said, What do you want to be remembered by? And he said, I want to be remembered that I gave them my heart. I gave them everything, and I left it all out on the field. He said, I don't care about the Heisman or the national championships, or how many games I won. But I want to be known that I left it all out on the field, that I gave them my all. So what's at the heart of a champion is passion. Passion. An intense, emotional, compelling feeling. Notice the word intense there. It's not just a feeling, but it is an intense, compelling feeling. It's enthusiasm. It's a desire for something. Couldn't you just see the passion in that video? I loved it when he's running and he's all bloodied up and he's still like, yeah, I'm going for it. I'm going for it. I'm not going to stop. You know, I love that there's a man that honors the Lord in football because I've got a young son who loves sports. I mean, his first word was ball. And so he loves sports, and I'm so thankful that there is a godly man in sports that he can look up to. And so when I saw this video, it just gave me chills. I just thought, yes, he is a man of passion. But let's think about Jesus here, because remember, how are we going to grow to be a champion? What's our verse? Hebrews 12:2. We're going to do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. I'm going to get y'all to read that with me. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. I want you to think about Jesus and his passion. You know, we discovered last week through the word of God that the reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. And he did that so that he could seek and save the lost. And what was the result? We saw that he triumphed over every evil spiritual tyrant at the cross, right? And what did it say? He marched him naked through the streets. He had ultimate victory. But, you know, Jesus' life wasn't easy, was it? I mean, you think about when he walked into ministry, 40 days in the desert, tempted by the devil. And then he comes out, and the Pharisees of his own people reject him, Over and over again. He goes to his hometown to perform miracles and the people want to get rid of him and throw him over the cliff. His disciples deserted him at times. Especially when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks them, Just stay awake and pray. Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. And the three closest to him, what do they do? Fall asleep. So what was it in Jesus that pushed him through to the end? Let's look at Luke 22 right now. Luke 22, and we're going to start in verse 39. Luke 22, 39 through 44. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Right here, in this time in Jesus' life, we see Jesus as 100% human, yet being 100% God. We see that he had anguish in his soul. Another version said he was anguish in his soul. His soul being his mind, his will, and his emotions. The human side of him that was toying and just spreading over the pain and the horror that he was about to go through. With such intensity, he prayed that blood came out of his pores as sweat. You know, when you look back at the history of crucifixion, most of the documents say that most criminals would die on the whipping table. That when they got to the point where they had the cat of nine tails put on their back over and over again, they would die from the pain. They would die from the flesh being opened up and the organs being exposed. And I know it is excruciating. But I heard a preacher say this once. What was it that drove Jesus even past that pain to the cross? You know, what was it that pushed him through that anguish in that soul and the horror that was going on in his body to go straight for the cross? I want to suggest to you it was passion. It was passion that trumped logic, it was passion that was going to push him through to the end to fulfill his father's will. It was blood, sweat, and tears. The passion that pushed him through the agony. To say, not my will be done, but thine. And I think it's the same thing for you and I. Even as we take our journey on this earth, it's going to be passion that keeps us moving forward when logic says there's no way. When doctor reports say there is no way. When children who have been reckless and, and gone off their own way and you think they're never coming home. It's going to be passion that keeps you praying for that lost son or daughter. Because logic of the earth is going to tell you there's no way. So as a champion for Christ, we've got to look at the passion within us. I want us to go now to Acts, and we're going to look at the passion of the early church. And it's Acts 12. And we're going to start in verse one, so just get to Acts 12. Okay, Acts 12, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So what does logic say right now for Peter's situation? Logic says, Peter, you're doomed. Peter, you're about to be executed just like James, the brother of John, was just executed. There's no way out, because not only are they going to put you in a jail cell or whatever they used at the time, they're going to chain you up, and then they're going to have 16 guards watching over you. And later we're going to see that even there was an iron gate that led into the city from this place. Insurmountable odds were against Peter. Odds of 16 to 1. But what does verse 5 say? But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So let's see what happened with that earnest prayer. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Logic said there's no hope. There's no hope. But a church who was passionately praying to God for Peter's release sent an angel to the jail cell, took off the chains, Walked them right by two sentries standing right outside the cell, plus plus two more sets of guards, and finally to the point where they would come to the iron gate. Earnest prayer by the body of believers, the early church. What does earnest mean? Marked by great intensity of feeling. Notice the word again, intensity. Passion, an intense emotion, intense feeling, an intense compelling desire. And here we see the church praying with that intensity in prayer for the release of Peter. You see, there's power in pri- passion. There's power with passion in our prayers and in our desire to fulfill God's will because passion will trump logic. What I love here in verse 10 is that when they got to the iron gate, how does it say the iron gate opened? By itself. By itself. The iron gate just opens by itself. You don't see Peter and the angels searching for the keys. You don't see them, hey, I'll toss you over the gate. Or let's push on it. We've got some strength. Or let's just crawl under it. That iron gate opens by itself. All because of earnest, passionate prayer from the church. I want to ask you, when was the last time you prayed like that? Maybe for yourself. Maybe for your child. Maybe for your marriage, your finances. When was the last time you prayed so earnestly and fervently with intense emotion and desire? You see, because I think God has some truth in this for us. That when we mix our championship qualities, with some passion, we're going to get some supernatural results. You see, and there can be some iron gates in every one of our lives. Some iron gates where we think there's no hope. When I think of an iron gate, I think of something that is strong and durable, something that you're just not going to bust through. You see, some of those iron gates for you and I can just be some sin, some sin that we just had trouble defeating. We've had trouble conquering that sin. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's insecurity. I think that's one of the biggest pitfalls for women. Is that we have believed lies from our past. And we have allowed that to create an identity in us that is not of the Lord. And so we wallow in this insecurity. And we don't get into the game. And we don't step out in some boldness. Because we've allowed this insecurity to take over. That can be an iron gate. What about the iron gate of pride? That's an ugly word. But every one of us has fallen victim to that at some point or another. Where we just think, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm better, you're not. But I want to suggest to you tonight that with some passionate prayer some intense emotion going after God, these iron gates can open by themselves for us. Because it's going to be God Almighty who opens these gates. It's not going to be you and I's effort. I said that wrong, I know. <laughs> it's not going to be our effort. But what it takes is that we stir up some passion within us. James five seventeen says that the earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and wonderful results. The earnest prayer, the great intensity prayer of a righteous man. This verse used to trip me up a little bit. Because I'd read that and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, Lena can pray and she's righteous and it's going to have some great power and wonderful results. Or my sister over here is righteous and she's going to pray and there's going to be some great power and wonderful results. Because, you see, when I read this, I thought, well, the righteous was like how good I am. What kind of good deeds did I do? You see, really, I was reading this as a self-righteousness. And that's not at all what the Word of God tells us. What He tells us is that when you have accepted Jesus Christ, He has clothed you with His righteousness, His purity, His holiness. So when you read this verse... You are righteous if you are in Christ Jesus. He has given you everything you need which pertains to life and godliness. So you can pray with this fervency, with this earnest, and produce good and powerful results. Tim Tebow, some of his teammates, I wanted to see what his new team... Um, teammates were saying about him because, you know, last year at the end of the season, he got traded from the Broncos to the Jets. I think that's right. My, my son was quite disappointed in that because he, he said, Mama, they're not a good team. And I said, well, we're, they're going to bring some light into that team like we sang about tonight. But so I was interested to see what were his new teammates saying about him. And so actually the quarterback, the first string quarterback said this about him. He said, some guys have it and some don't. It's the passion within Tim Tebow. He said, you see it all the time. You see it in the lunchroom. You see it in the gym. You see him walking down the hallway. You see it on the field. It's the passion within him that gives him that oomph. Have you ever just met someone, whether it be in your workplace, in your church, in your family, and you just thought, they've got that umph to them? You see, I think that secret is passion, I want to ask you, what right now, if you did a survey with all your fellow teammates for the Champions for Christ, what they would say about you and your passion, what would they say? I had a young lady come up to me after the morning session and she said, I actually asked my children that once. And I was like, really? And she said, Mama, you're passionate about keeping the house clean. And I was like, okay. I said, I didn't know you were that clean. She said, well, I'm not. But I guess that's all they see me doing is cleaning the house all the time. But I want you to think about that. If you ask the people who are closest to you, what am I passionate about? Because sometimes our passions may not be bad, but they may be out of order. I start thinking in my own life, what are some things that maybe I am passionate about that aren't bad but just have gotten misplaced in the hierarchy. I thought about my children. You know, my children's success. And wanting to do everything I can to push them forward to be all that they can be. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But if I get it out of order from God, my marriage, and my children, and if I put that children up above all those things, it can become a bad thing. Or what about being so passionate about the way we look and all of us women, we're all guilty of that. We become so passionate about the way our hair is, in which I got a bad haircut this last time <laughs> that I was not happy about, about our hair, about a handbag, about our clothes. It can take up time and energy and thought, which I'm not saying go look ratty, but we can become passionate about that too much. Or what about football? We're in football season, and I love some Auburn Tigers. But can I become so passionate about that football that I give it all my time, all my money, all my energy, all my words before the Lord Jesus? You see, there are times that we've got to do a personal evaluation and say, are my passions lined up? Galatians five twenty four it's in your notes. Did y'all get your notes tonight? Okay. It says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Notice also, we can have some passions that are sinful. First John two fifteen through seventeen. And I'm going to read you out of the New Life Application Bible. It kind of talks about the passions of the flesh. And it lists listed it out. And so I'm going to read them to you, what they said passions of the flesh were. The craze for sex. I want to interject that as lust. Passion of the flesh. Lust. Number two, the ambition to buy everything that appeals to you. Guilty the ambition to buy everything that appeals to you, and the pride that comes from wealth and importance. You see, we can have some passions in us that are sinful, but what does that Galatians 5 say? That when we belong to Jesus Christ, those evil passions, those sinful passions of the flesh should be nailed to the cross because he took it. He paid the price, past, present, and future. He did it all once and for all. It will not be done again. He signed the line with his blood. But sometimes we can let those passions entangle us, can't we? There's a scripture in Revelation 3 that I want to read you that is one of those scriptures that I really just wish wasn't in the Word. But we don't get to pick and choose, do we? We don't get to pick and choose. And so I want to read you Revelation 3, 15 through 19. It says, these are the words of the Amen. And this is written to the church in Laodicea. It says, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest, earnest, and repent. You see, this is the revelation that John had to this church that Jesus was saying to them, You've become way too self sufficient. With all your wealth and your importance, with your little eye salve ointment that you make that's healing this blindness, you've become too self-satisfied. And because of your self-satisfaction, you've become neither hot nor cold. And it calls them lukewarm. When I think about lukewarm, I think of the complete opposite of passion. Lukewarm is being unenthusiastic. Lukewarm is stagnant and stale. Lukewarm is like you're just sitting on the fence. Not hot and not cold. I don't know if y'all have heard of the pastor Francis Chan. He's written some great books called Crazy Love, Forgotten God. And he has an awesome sermon called The Lukewarm Church. I encourage you, if you've got time, Google it. Get on YouTube and you probably can watch parts of it. But I'm going to warn you. You're going to walk out and you're going to have some conviction. Nobody can listen to it or not. But what Francis Chan says, that there is such a holy fear in me of this scripture and this truth, that he says, I ask myself this question often. Am I passionate for the things of God or am I lukewarm? You know, this is that scripture that caused me to tremble. I don't fully understand it. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you I do. But what I can tell you from the Word of God is that He hates lukewarm. He hates lukewarm. Neither hot nor cold. And I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It's so disgust the Lord. We're not passionate for Him that He wants to spit us out of His mouth. And I sit there and think, God, that's pretty harsh. But I think that God, when He says this, He's thinking, Do you see the passion I gave you? Do you see that I sent my own son, fully God and fully human, to take it all for you? Every disease, every sin, every trial, every sorrow. He did it with passion. He gave his very best. And so he looks for people and he says, I need one who's passionate for me. That's going to lay down their life, lay down their worldly desires and say, here am I. Just like those songs we're singing I stand with arms raised, my heart abandoned. He wants people with hearts abandoned, full of passion for him. You see, God is drawn to passionate people. I'm just going to list some of these from the word of God, Moses. Moses was such a man of passion that when he, when he was in the desert and one of his fellow Hebrew brothers was knocked down by Egyptian, he went and just killed him. Now, that was a little intense, intense passion, but I'm going to prove a point here in a minute. Abraham, he was so passionate that he radically obeyed God when God said, Go up that mountain and take your beloved son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. So full of passion. Okay, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do exactly what you tell me to do, even though I can't fully understand this. Or what about David? David, a man after God's own heart. Last week we saw that he ran up to Goliath to slay him. David, when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the temple, David, as the king, takes off all his royalty and dances and whirls around in his ephod just to ruin his reputation and have his wife despise him. Peter, Peter was full of passion. Just like Lana said last week, when Jesus called him out of the boat and said, follow me, Peter drops everything and immediately follows him. Peter, when Jesus looks to his disciples and he said, who do you say that I am? Peter with boldness says, you are the son of God. Or what about when they're in that garden and Jesus has just sweat blood and anguish and told, and Peter's already fallen asleep, but when those guards come to take Jesus, what does Peter do? Cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. Or what about Mary, Martha's sister? You know, during that time, it was not custom for the women to go into the living room. But what, did, what happened when Jesus came to her house that day and Martha was in there getting the meal prepared? Mary, out of passion, said, I'm walking in there anyway, whether it's out of custom or tradition, and I'm going to sit at my Lord's feet. God is drawn to passionate people. Whether good, like Moses at first, or bad. He loves someone that he knows has that passion stirred up in them. And what about Paul? We're going to end on Paul. If you'll turn with me to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. And we'll start in verse, midway through verse 4. And this is Paul speaking. And he says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. This was a pre-Damascus Paul. Paul. Do you notice the passion that was even in within Paul then? I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews, born into the Benjamin tribe, circumcised on the eighth day. When it comes to the law, faultless. Paul had passion enough to believe in all that, where he would go and persecute the Christians, go and kill them, go and look for them to take them out. I sometimes have thought, God, couldn't you have chosen someone without such an ugly past? Couldn't you have chosen someone who wasn't killing the same people that you came to save? And you know what I think when I ask that question? That God looks down and says, now there's a man I can use. There is a passionate man willing to sacrifice everything for a cause. So what happened then when God got a hold of Paul? Verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sharing, of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. When you read that, what Paul is saying about himself, do you not feel the passion that he's saying? I consider all that other stuff rubbish, trash, garbage compared to knowing my Lord. You see, Paul was so passionate that he had counted the cost. And he decided the cost was worth him throwing away everything behind him and to pursue one thing. And that is the thing that God had created him to do, and that was to further his kingdom. You see, Paul's purpose and his passion shaped all that he did. Paul accomplished so much in his two decades of ministry. Paul started at least 14 known churches. If you study it, they think he started way more than that through all the different converts um, that he made for Christians in the different cities. But 14 known churches. He wrote at least 13 books of the Bible. Some people believe he also wrote Hebrews, so that would make it 14. Paul was passionate about his purpose. And he pursued it at all costs. And he accomplished so much in his two decades of ministry that that passion he started is still going strong this day. Two, over 2,000 years later. See, God looked for a man with passion. And I think he's looking still right now for some women to have some passion within. You know, but I know it's not hard to keep that passion stirred up, is it? I mean, I know it's hard to do that. I know many times when we walk out of this Bible study, I pray and I hope that you're fired up and you're encouraged and you're ready to increase your relationship with the Lord and to do mighty things. Or maybe you've gone to a conference before and you walked out and you're like, yes! And you're on this spiritual high. And about a month later, you find yourself right in the same spot before. You see, I think there's some keys with keeping that passion stirred up in us. Recently, I was watching Jensen Franklin um, do a sermon, and I think it was called Revive. And he used this example, and so I'm going to steal that from him because it was just such a good example about passion. But anyway, he was talking about sweet tea. And, you know, he's he's in Georgia and, you know, we're in Alabama. So we all like our sweet tea. You know, we like it real syrupy and good. And I, I swear Chappie says the best sweet tea. I don't know what they put in it, but it is so good and sweet. But, you know, sometimes when you go up north, or you even go way down South Florida, you'll say, I want some sweet tea. And they're like, oh, we don't have sweet tea. We've got regular tea, but here's our sweetener. And Stupid me, every time I'm like, okay, I'll take it, you know, thinking it's going to be just as good. And so I get my tea, or we get our tea, and we, we get that sugar packet, and we pour it in there and stir it up and taste it, and you're like, ugh, no flavor. And you take another one, and you take another one, and finally it's sweet enough, but you're stirring it up. And you take a sip of that tea, and you're like, okay, that's all right. You know, it's not as good, but it's okay. But then what happens when you start eating, and you go to take a big gulp of that sweet tea? It's not sweet, is it? All that sugar has settled right down to the bottom. So to get it where it tastes good and decent, you've got to stir it up. You see, I think that's the same way passion is for each of us. Sometimes we've got to stir up that passion. First Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. It's an important thing to be a champion for Christ, to be driven by passion. But how do you do that? I'm going to give you three quick little things that I feel like are ways that I personally keep that fire going within me. Number one, increase your time with the Lord. Your intimacy with the Father is crucial to keep passion stirred up in you. Jesus said, Abide in me and I will abide in you. When we abide in Jesus, we gotta spend time with him. I started thinking of my marriage. One of my love languages is time. I'm not a big gifts or, or helps type person, but I love time. And so when Bradley and I start feeling, you know, like way over here with three children and sports and school, I need time so that I can have more intimacy and more passion for my marriage. And so that's when I say, okay, we need time, we need dinner, we need a date. And so that's what he knows. Okay, if Anne's going to be in this marriage strong and fight for it and be a good wife, I've got to give her that time. Well, it's the same with the Lord. We've got to give the Lord that time. You need to set a time that you are going to be with the Lord. You need to set a place. And it should be as important to you as any other meeting you have. And I know there's going to be times that things happen and you can't, but I'm saying on the majority of the time, you've got to have it set in stone that this is my time with the Lord if you want to have passion. Number two, I believe, is that we come together in unity with the body of believers. These past three weeks, we've had a prayer service called Kindle. And I love that it's Kindle, you know, fire, Kindle in the fire, but It was a great time of unity with the body of believers. As we came together to pray healing for many children, to pray for the church, to pray for our youth, you could feel the passion erupting in the room. Have you ever noticed that passion is contagious Have you ever been around someone, let's just say you're at a football game, and you might be one just, uh, you know, I'm liking it. But if you've got people all around you going crazy, you find yourself going crazy. You see, passion's contagious. I encourage you to go back and read the Hebrews 10 scripture. It talks about we don't forsake the coming together as a body of believers. It's important. That's why Jesus created the church, the body of Christ, to come together. The third thing I want to say to you is that praise and worship can ignite passion. Just like we did earlier tonight. Because it takes your eyes off of yourself and your problems and the iron gates that are in front of you. And it puts it on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I encourage you to try something new in your praise and worship. I encourage you to open your hands. I encourage you to sing a different song. I encourage you to shout to the Lord. But praise and worship can ignite a passion within you. It did for me. I'll be honest, it did about six years ago. I would go really passionate when I'd go to some rock concerts. I don't even want to tell you those bands. But then when I went to an actually Holy Spirit fired up concert that was praising the Lord, it ignited something in me. So praise and worship can stir up that passion. Tomorrow night, we've got a great event. Come into our, I mean, at our church at 6 o'clock in the um, Contemporary Center, Worship Center. Ignite where we're going to come together and we're going to worship and we're going to praise and we're going to hear testimonies of how people have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So I invite all of you, come. Be ignited with some passion. I want to leave you with one more man of passion that I want to share with you. And his name is Winston Churchill. And I'm not a big history buff, but this just really spoke to me. Winston Churchill, on May 13, 1940, became Great Britain's Prime Minister. And during this time, it was the beginning of World War II, and Adolf Hitler was just roaring across Europe. And they seemed like an unstoppable force, and they were taking country after country for the Nazi Germany. At that point in history, Great Britain wasn't s- certain if they were going to survive or not. And Winston Churchill... Comes to be the Prime Minister. And I want to read to you part of his speech. This is what it says I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Winston Churchill became one of the greatest champions in the 20th century. He was known for his passionate spirit to lead Great Britain in victory during World War II. For each of us to rise up a champion at this hour for the kingdom of God. It might mean that we offer up some blood, some sweat, and some tears. But I can tell you what I believe through the word of God. Through all these different characters in the Bible. That what will push you through to the very end when the insurmountable odds are against you is passion. Passion in your prayer life. Passion in your desire to fulfill God's will. Passion will push you through when, when all of logic says there's no hope. So I encourage you, stir it up. Stir up that passion within. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Before we leave tonight, I've got a video I want you to watch. Because every time I watch it, it stirs up some passion in me. So y'all watch the screen.
2: No means of measure can define His limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's he dies, He heals the sick, He cleanses the lepers, He forgives sinners, He discharges debtors, He delivers the captives, He defends the feeble, He blesses the young, He serves the unfortunate, He rewards the age, He rewards the diligent, and He purifies the meek. I wonder if you know Him, He's a key to knowledge.
0: Doesn't that just stir up passion in you? That's our king. That is the champion that we follow and that we serve. As we end tonight, I just want to pray a blessing over you as you walk out. So if you'll just bow your heads. Father, I just bless these women with renewed strength, with renewed passion in their hearts. I bless them with earnest and fervent prayer. I bless them to be covered by your immeasurable, incomprehensible love. I bless them with grace that superabounds in their life. I bless them with hope that never fails. I bless them with strength that confounds the mighty. I bless their hearts to be stirred up with the fire within that they may come together as the kingdom of God and ignite, ignite a great force for your name. I pray this in Jesus' name, above all names. Amen.